Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, you're listening to The Bustle Huddle and welcome to the very first episode of season three. Boop, 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 boop. I've always wanted to do that on a podcast. I'm Jada Gomez, Bustle's executive editor, and we're changing things up a little bit this season. The biggest remix is that I'm your new host. I'm so excited to host the Bustle Huddle because I've always, always wanted to be a part of the Bustle family, and it's been an amazing two months since I've been here. And this isn't my first podcast. I actually hosted a sports podcast with a few guys called He Shoots, She Scores, and I was basically the only girl wrangling a bunch of dudes with hot takes. So it's really great to finally get to speak to women about the things that I care about. And the second remix that we have for you guys is that each episode we're going to invite another Bustle editor to the booth to talk about the topics that they're experts on. And I'm excited to have a co-host every week because as you'll get to know after a few episodes, I'm kind of shy. So it's really great to have some of my colleagues in the booth with me and then a great way for me to also learn more about Bustle since I'm pretty new too. So with that, why don't we introduce our first guest of the season, our associate lifestyle editor, Melanie Mignucci, is in the house. Hey, guys. So welcome, Mel. I'm so excited that you're my first guest, considering we've worked a lot together in this little brief period. Thanks so much for having me, Jada. Yeah, thanks for being here. We want to make sure that our audience gets to know you, gets to know the woman behind the work on our lifestyle vertical. But obviously, in podcast land, we don't have a ton of time. So let's hear about Mel in the 30-second version of Mel. (laughs) Oh my god, pressure's on. Ready? Go. (sighs) Okay, so, I was born on a blizzardy night in January 1994. That is true. I was born during a blizzard. I am a Capricorn. People at work make fun of me all the time for being a Capricorn. I was born in New York, but I grew up in Connecticut, which went exactly as it sounds like. Um, I'm really bad at improv, as you can probably tell already. Um, And as a Capricorn, I wish I knew how many more seconds were left on the clock, but I don't, so it's totally fine. I have so many open beverages on my desk right now. (laughs) Wait, Vegeta, you haven't even done this yet. Can I ask what your 30-second bio would be? Uh, you're right. Okay, let's do it. 30 seconds. Who are you? Go. In the booth. Okay, my name is Jada. I am a lifelong native New Yorker. Grew up in Queens. Very proud about that because everyone always loves Brooklyn, but I think Queens is pretty great too. I am the child of DJs from New York, so I can pretty much guess any sample of any song that you ever had a question about. My friends say that I'm a real-life Disney princess, which I think is kind of great because they're sweet, right? That's cool. I was fourth in my Wait, but what were you fourth in? I was fourth in my class. Way to go. That's awesome. (laughs) So now that we've gotten all of our intros out of the way, why don't you kick us off by letting the audience know what we're talking about today? 
Yeah, so I'm actually really excited to be here today um, to talk about something I had the honor to work on the past few months. Um, back in July, I was approached by writer Sarah Altschul, who had recently been diagnosed with a BRCA gene mutation. If you don't know about BRCA gene mutation, it stands for breast cancer susceptibility gene. And it's basically a tumor suppressing gene that we're all born with, but people with the BRCA gene are born with a mutation that makes them more susceptible to breast and ovarian cancer. Sarah had discovered that she had this gene through a 23andMe test, and she wanted to write about her journey for Bustle, going through the process of diagnosis, figuring out her treatment options, and eventually getting a prophylactic double mastectomy. So we've personally gotten to work with Sarah, and we can go on and on for days about how amazing she is, how brave she is, and what we've learned. But let's get into Sarah's story in her own words. So I was lucky enough to speak to Sarah prior to her surgery, and we talked about her initial testing, and she really got into how she's coping on a day-to-day basis. So first thing, walk us through how you first discovered you were positive for the BRCA gene mutation. For my 30th birthday, my sister gave me the 23andMe for fun um, to find out my ancestry, I like to think of myself as like a mild hypochondriac, Um, so I decided I would add on the health benefits. I was at the time most worried that I might have a variant for Alzheimer's, and I didn't, and I was good for everything. I think, I want to say six months after that, I got an email from 23andMe, and they said, they're now FDA approved to tell you if you have one of the three mutations that they test for in the BRCA mutations. And in the email, it says that these three mutations that they test for can be quite common in the Ashkenazi Jewish heritage. And so that was a little concerning to me because thanks to my 23andMe, I know I'm 75% Ashkenazi Jewish. Um, And I had this very strange gut feeling that I have this mutation, but I also am a mild hypochondriac. Mm -hmm. So I like, you know, called my mom and I was like, I I have this really weird feeling. I have this. And, you know, no one believes me at this point. Of course, why would they? And then soon enough, a couple weeks later, I got my results and it was um, positive for um, the BRCA2 mutation. I was talking to my mom about your story and how fascinated I was by it just because we had um, just recently done our ancestry results. And a lot of these yeah. uh, these DNA kits are given as Christmas gifts almost in a way. Like I got my mom hers for Christmas. And her first thing, too, her, my mom's first thought was, why isn't this risk something that doctors are checking for? Um, but at the same time, I told her, I'm like, well, you know, this is like a new Thing. What would be your advice or thought to someone who was interested in maybe finding out their 23andMe results but were hesitant about maybe some of the health risk factors? I think the most important thing is being ready to hear this information because there come with a lot of decisions that you have to make after you find out something like this. I think luckily for me, I was at a stage in my life where I was ready, but not everyone is fully ready for that. And so I think just knowing if this is something that you feel like you can handle at your in your current life. Mm-hmm. For me, I was, um, but I know that might not be the case for everyone. And I think it's a little bit more alarming when you are 
in a community like the Ashkenazi community who's deeply impacted by this. The first time I heard that the chance of having one of the mutations was a one in 40 chance. I was shocked. And that was after I got my diagnosis. So for me, I was like, so dumbfounded that that wasn't something I knew before. You know, that's a really high chance. And People weren't talking about it, and I still feel like people aren't really talking about it. And I never had a doctor talk about it to me. I think it's just something that the more that I can enlighten one person to know that this is the risk in this community, then hopefully they'll share that with someone else, and it will keep the conversation going. How has writing in particular, because you're so open and you're so candid, like how has that process helped you with not only your coping, but then also your decision-making? You know, in the beginning, I think, like, why is this happening to me or, you know, why me or those kinds of thoughts. And I started looking for other women's experiences. For me, when I read other women's stories and I, you know, saw on social channels, I felt a little less alone. And so I wanted to be able to do that for someone else. And if I can make sense of it all, it makes more sense to me that I take this experience for myself and I help one woman feel a little less alone or I help encourage someone to go get tested when they're ready. And I guess it answers that question of why me? And I know it sounds so cheesy, but like that's the the biggest thing I get from writing. Other than that, I also feel like it really helps me hold myself accountable too for, you know, having to push through the hard parts. And there's obviously times when I don't want to face it or I just want to like pull the covers over my head and, you know, like watch Real Housewives all day (laughs) and just like, you know, tune out from the world. And it's a good way for me, you know, if I know I have an article coming up that I really have to face what I'm feeling and I have to push past those really hard emotions and feel them. So all of that has been really, really helpful. And I've just weirdly enjoyed my experience of being able to talk about this. You bring up a really good point in terms of just kind of being okay with the feelings, even if that does involve like watching Real Housewives. Like, I don't think anyone would fault you for that. I think that could be healthy too. (laughs) Yeah. As a fellow hypochondriac. What's your opinion on the things that people should do while they're waiting for their 23andMe results? Do you think it's wise to Google? So I over-Googled, and it was almost like I couldn't get enough. If you're just reading one story after the next and your anxiety is just going up and that's like probably something that you should stop doing. And then also, I never suggest Google imaging, what a double mastectomy looks like. I think that's like the first thing I did. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, this was a horrible idea because, you know, a lot of times in the Google images shows you really drastic pictures. And, you know, I like jumped the gun. I didn't even have my results yet. I Googled what a double mastectomy with reconstructive surgery looked like. And I went really, really far. So I don't suggest that people do what I did. But in some way, it's good to prepare yourself with a little bit of research. But, you know, a lot cannot be so great sometimes, too. So is this after you got your 23andMe results or was this after you got your results from your genetic counselor? So I got the results from 23andMe first. 
And then immediately I went to go see a genetic counselor to follow up. And so 23andMe, when they give you the results, they first ask you, like, are you sure you want to know this? Um, And then they walk through what it means if you have it. But they tell you that you have to go. It's not a diagnostic test and that you do have to go follow up with an actual, like, blood test or through a doctor. Uh, That's exactly what I did. And I 100% highly recommend that someone does that, too, because you want to be totally sure And plus the, you know, you get your results through a computer screen, which is a lot different than getting your results from an actual human being. So the most important thing I always say is like, if you do end up finding your results through a DNA test, do yourself a favor and go see a genetic counselor because that was really, really helpful in a time that I felt very overwhelmed. So let's talk about the money part of this. Were there any financial hurdles getting genetic counseling? Yeah, it's really interesting. So even with my 23andMe results telling me that I had the BRCA2 mutation, uh, my insurance still didn't pay for my genetic counseling. So I actually had to pay for that out of pocket. And it's because, and this could just be in California, but you have to have a first-degree relative affected by breast cancer or ovarian cancer. If you don't have a first-degree relative, they won't pay for it, and I actually didn't. So let's talk a little bit more about your decision to get a double mastectomy. So can you just trace us back from when you found out that you had a 10% chance of developing breast cancer to actually going ahead and booking your surgery? Yeah, so when I got my results, I knew right away that I was going to have the double mastectomy. Even though my risk right now is lower, my lifetime risk can be up to an 84% by the time I'm 70. So to me, it wasn't a matter of if they found cancer, it was more when they found cancer. And I just, I'm the kind of person that if I have the chance to be in control of my own body, I wanted to do whatever I could. And also, and you know, this decision isn't for everyone. The other option is that every six months I have an MRI and a mammogram, a pelvic ultrasound, and a blood test. But for me, I'm a really anxious person. I'd wake up and give myself like a breast exam in the morning and the breast exam in the evening. And I was like, okay, I have to stop. And I knew that I couldn't wake up every day and know that this was weighing heavily on me. It was more of when am I going to do this surgery? You know, I want to do it when I'm a little bit younger because I live a pretty healthy life and I feel as if I, when I do it when I'm young, then maybe I'll have an easier time recovering. And, you know, I just figured I'll be so upset with myself if I don't do the surgery and then a year from now they find cancer and then I don't have as many options and the cancer is kind of ruling my decisions and I'd rather rule my own decisions. I think that's pretty brave because as someone with anxiety and knowing a lot of people with anxiety, sometimes your anxiety can kind of lead you to indecision and you're just kind of like afraid of the unknown where you're actually facing a little bit of the unknown, um, which I think is super, super brave for someone who, you know, does have anxiety. Yeah, thank you. That's like the biggest hurdle that I have learned through all this is like facing the unknown. I scheduled my surgery three months in advance, so I've just been sitting and thinking about this for three months. And with someone with anxiety, it can be really hard. And I've really worked at 
letting go of my fear of the unknown. You know, I like to control everything, and for once in my life, I have no control, and I've just had to almost come to peace with that and just kind of give in to this. But it's taken a lot of work, and I've shed a lot of tears, and I have really tried every day to just, I write down the things I'm grateful for, I write the things that I want to happen, and then I just kind of say, like, let go. Something that my doctors have told me, which actually I started doing and it really helped, is I'm I'm really afraid of the pain. Um, and so my doctor told me before you go to sleep, you know, picture us cutting into you. Picture the needle. Picture all of that. And just tell yourself, I'm not afraid. Wow. I'm not scared. I'm not going to feel pain. And I was like, okay, that sounds yeah. crazy. And I started doing it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is actually helping me. And it's giving me some sense of calmness. Now, I have no idea how I feel like the day before, but I am, I do take any like moment where I feel a sense of zen or calmness and just like celebrate the fact that I feel that. That is awesome. I don't want to like stay on your anxiety for any longer than necessary, <laughs> but I did want to ask you about BRCA brain. How yes. do you describe this? And have you experienced, is it possible to experience BRCA brain within other periods of trauma or high anxiety, or yeah. is it just completely unique to this experience? I honestly think it's just stress brain because I had a friend who was pregnant and she used to say pregnancy brain. So I took it from that and I was like, I don't know what this feeling is that I'm feeling. And it's basically like a fog. I feel a million emotions like in one day and I have this really strange sensation that, so it's been, I think only six months since I found out, but I feel as if I've lived six years. And I can't remember a lot of stuff, um, probably because I'm focused so much on the surgery. So I'm sure it's similar to people that have traumatic situations happen and like your brain isn't working the same. And so that's how I feel like it is for me. It's funny because I just sometimes blame things on it. Like I'll, if I can't remember, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, mom, Bracca brain. And <laughs> it's like a, a little pass. So I try and just make light of it sometimes because otherwise it's a little bit too much crying. I can't use it forever, but <laughs> I at least can use it right now and I'll take it. My grandma has a saying, she's like, you laugh to keep from crying. So she would always totally. say that when like there was something that was going on that was rough and then you're like, yeah, that's true. You know, being able to laugh at it does help. Yeah. So what is your day-to-day -day like? Are you writing full-time at home? Are you working a full job? Um, I have a normal 9-to-5 job. I work remote, which is great because I have a million doctor's appointments. Um, but I need to have a normal, quote-unquote, day because I like this routine that I have. And that has been really helpful for anyone that's, you know, going through a really hard time. What I found to be the most helpful for me was having this routine that I could stick to. So I wake up, I go running. That's super, super helpful. And then I have like my vitamins and then I make sure I'm drinking a lot of water and I'm doing all these things that like make me feel like I have a little bit more sense of control in my life. Um, and then, you know, some days are really hard and I feel really anxious. So something that's been also helpful is knowing your limits. And so I have like friends that are 
so, so sweet and supportive. And they'll be like, can I come over? Can I see you? Do you want to go get dinner? And I just tell them that, you know, some days are bad and some days are good. And I don't want to commit myself to too much because sometimes it can feel really overwhelming. So knowing what you can handle is important. And then I take a lot of baths. I watch a lot of Real Housewives. (laughs) um, And then I kind of try and do things where I'm distracting myself, but in a good way. So I try to, you know, live in the moment. But then also, like, if that moment is, you know, fear and anxiety and I want to cry, I cry it out. Um, So every day is kind of like it could be an up and down battle. But then at the same time, it's like I still am living a normal life. Like I still have the same bills to pay. I have, you know, a nine to five job. I have all that stuff. Um, So sometimes it can be overwhelming because life is overwhelming. And then you add on like, you know, a high chance of developing breast cancer and, oh, yeah, a double mastectomy. It can be a lot. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot to handle. But those are really great healthy distractions that I think are that are good for for anyone's everyday life. You mentioned your friends. Are you also dating? Yes. So I have a really supportive boyfriend who has been, like, really, really amazing throughout this process. And it's been really nice to just have a partner and feel like you have a team and you're not alone in this. And um, my friends are amazing. They're throwing me a boob voyage party this weekend. <laughs> um, so like a boob cupcakes and like pin the boob on the woman or I don't know, like so a fun. bunch of um, fun stuff. So let's talk about your most important relationship, the one that you have with your mom. Yeah. How did she handle the news? How has she been through this whole process for you? My mom is my best friend. She's amazing. She's truly my rock throughout this whole process. Of course, I told her she was the first person I called, like, hysterical when I found out my results. So in the beginning, when I would tell people I had the BRCA2 mutation, you know, people don't know what to say. And there really isn't anything. Like, you know, there's no right thing to say. And um, you really just want people to listen to you and to, like, hear your true fears. And so sometimes friends will say, like, but this is a good thing or, you know, this will, you know, save your life. And it totally is. But sometimes all you want is to just be like, I am so scared. And someone to be like, yeah. And just hear that fear instead of trying to spin it in a positive way. And so my mom was that person for me. Two weeks ago, I had like a mini meltdown and I called her and I was like, I'm just so afraid. And I just cried and she just listened and was like, I know this is so scary, but I'm here for you. You're not alone. And like that was it and just heard my emotions. So that's just having to like explain to someone where your mind is at is really helpful during this process. In your piece on Bustle, you mentioned The Bucket List by Georgia Clark. We were curious, do you have a bucket list for your own breasts? <laughs> I don't have a bucket list. Truth be told, I've never, like, been in love with my boobs. So, like, in a way that I feel like this kind of, like, is a little bit, like, of a good thing going into this because I've never was, like, so attached to them. So I, in a way, I'm kind of, like, holding on to the fact that I don't have that feeling and I'm hoping that, you know, that it helps me in a little bit of a way because a lot of women say after the surgery, like, many people don't know this, but you don't, um, you often lose sensation of your breasts after. So when you touch them, it feels like you're touching someone else's boobs. So you lose a sense of, like, that they're your own. Um, And so I'm hoping because I'm not 
super attached to men and I kind of like hate them right now because of like what they're trying to do to me that it helps me kind of like conceptualize my new boobs if that makes sense like okay I don't I've never loved you that much so like now bye-bye like we're gone do you plan on getting implants after the mastectomy yeah so there's a lot of different types of breast reconstructive surgery but for me I'm doing it's called a direct to implant method so basically the doctor breast surgeon comes in and they do the mastectomy and then my plastic surgeon comes in right after and then puts in breast implants right away so a lot of women do uh, what is called a tissue expander and um, that's where they place this tissue expander which is like really really hard and they fill it every two weeks with I think it's saline and then it stretches your skin and then a couple months later you have another surgery and it's called an exchange surgery and then they put in the implant but I knew for me I'm not going like a lot a lot bigger so I'm a candidate for the one-step procedure I feel really lucky that I'll be able to wake up and you know have my new breasts right away. I think that's so empowering that you get to choose. Yeah, I know. I mean, I will take any like bit of choice I have at the moment. Like any ounce of excitement during a double mastectomy, I will definitely take. So like, this is a little bit exciting. <laughs> the day before the surgery is such an important one where you can kind of craft where you're going to be mentally. Yeah. Do you have any plans? Are you going to get a massage? Or are you going to go to the beach or anything like that? I have the day off from work. Uh, my mom's taking me. I'm getting a manicure and pedicure. Um, although I think you have to have clear nail polish for when you go into surgery. So it won't be as fun, but I'll still. Um, and then uh, my sister is coming down to see me too. And so we'll just do like a family dinner um, and then cry if I want to cry and just feel good about myself so I'm sure I'll like get a run-in with my playlist and I have this amazing dog that I can't hold for a month after so I will be like squeezing her and like she will be so annoyed with me but I'm gonna get so many snuggles and kisses in like I think that's really much my whole day there. Ooh, the playlist we definitely need to talk about that. Yeah so there's two things that I do now that I didn't really do before. The first is like I look up motivational quotes on Pinterest like all the time and I'm it's like an embarrassing thing but I do it all the time and then um, cheesy songs like cheesy motivational songs like that really helped get me through and like I would like run and sometimes I would listen to these songs and I would feel really strong and I would cry and it was really therapeutic. I love it. I'm definitely the queen of cheese. Yeah. Is there a particular song that motivates you the most? This one's ultimate cheese, but I truly love it. It's the, um, it's Katy Perry Rise. And it's just the first two um, opening lines. And when I first heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like how I want to form my idea of going through this. And so it's like, I won't just survive. Oh, you'll see me thrive. And for me, I just wanted my intent, like this whole process, I felt in the beginning like I was just like trying to survive this. But I wanted to be able to take this and thrive from it and not just survive. Like I want to be a stronger person. I want to come out of this like as a fighter, I'm going to make something of it. Hey, 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I know I previously said that I was the queen of cheese, but like I literally have rise on one of my empowering Jada playlists on Spotify. And I think I'm going to listen to it differently now. I mean, when I was editing Sarah's piece, what I re- what really struck me was her amazing attitude throughout. Like she's going through this really tough process, and she's showing her strength and vulnerability at the same time. And that, to me, really speaks to this ability to thrive. Yes, she's such an inspiration, and I know that's probably the last word she wants associated <laughs> with her. But I mean, just honestly and truly, we we love you, Sarah, and please definitely keep listening because we were actually lucky to reconnect with Sarah after her surgery. So we're really excited to see how she's doing, how she's coping. But first, we wanted to talk to an expert because no one's experience finding out that you have a BRCA mutation is going to be the same. So we went straight to the source. I'm Mark Hurlbert. I'm the chief mission officer at the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. BCRF is the world's largest funder of breast cancer research. This year providing $63 million to 300 researchers and scientists across the globe. You know, all of us try to lead healthy lifestyles, but really, if you are carrying a known genetic mutation, you should do everything you can to to exercise regularly, five days of every week. It's also suggested that women avoid alcohol. So if you do drink wine or alcohol, reduce the amount of times you drink each week. Um, there are many things you can do. Um, many women I've met personally do choose to have a prophylactic mastectomy if, they know, if they're known to carry the BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. And they choose that because they're so anxious and have such high anxiety about potentially having cancer, having cancer at a young age. And the risk of cancer is so elevated to them that for them, it's a great quality of life decision to have a prophylactic mastectomy. There are other women, however, that, you know, the idea of having a prophylactic mastectomy when their risk, it's only a risk factor. It's not a given that you'll go on to have cancer. And keeping their breasts and their, you know, their natural breasts and not having mastectomy and reconstruction is their preference. And again, there's no wrong answer. Uh, having these preventive surgeries or um, there, are, there are risk-reducing drugs you can take, it's really each person's decision. For the women that decide to have a prophylactic mastectomy, doing so has been reported by the National Cancer Institute to reduce your risk of breast cancer in the future by up to 95%. It doesn't completely eliminate risk, but it does reduce the risk tremendously So an important resource for any listener out there today is to visit Facing Our Risk, FORCE. It's the Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. They have a really comprehensive list of questions to better understand your family history, 
and as well as links to resources to contact a genetic counselor or genetic specialist that could help you understand your genetic test results. For more resources, or if you want to learn more, you can check out the Breast Cancer Research Foundation's website at bcrf.org. The Breasties is another great nonprofit offering support for women facing breast cancer, whether they be uh, survivors, previvors, or caregivers. You can visit them at thebreasties.org. Okay, guys, so now it's time to hear from Sarah. We're so excited to see how she's doing after her surgery. She successfully had her preventative double mastectomy and is now a previvor, meaning she has successfully treated her risk of breast cancer. And it almost feels like a bit of a celebration, even though this has been such a rough journey for Sarah, but I'm just so excited to see how she's come out on the other side. Are you ready to hear from Sarah? I can't wait. Let's do it. Hello. Sarah? Hi, it's Sarah. Hi, it's Mel. I'm so excited to finally get to talk to you. I know. It feels like I've talked to you, like, on the phone a million times, but we haven't. It's so funny. (laughs) It's like we've been emailing for, like... (laughs) <laughs> Three months? Four months now? Yeah. I don't even I know. know. It's so funny. <laughs> How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Today is two weeks post-op. Exactly. So, and I feel like a whole new woman. It's crazy. Oh, my gosh. What has been, like, your big victory today, two weeks post-op? Oh, my gosh. Um. Okay, well, I still needed help getting out of bed. <laughs> so, I can't conquer that yet. I rented a medical bed, so mm-hmm. it, like... Somehow I, like, fall in the middle of the night and I need help getting up. But um, I brushed my hair on my own. Woo! Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's a victory. And then I have made half of my breakfast on my own. Oh, my God. Little victories. victories. That's awesome. Little victories. (laughs) I'm so happy to hear that. What was it like the day before surgery? I thought I would be, like, crazy, crazy anxious. And I was, but I had other days, like, a month before the surgery that were way worse. So I was, like, pretty shocked and pleasantly surprised I was somewhat zen. I think I just had felt, like, every single emotion already um, and processed everything and just, like, so ready to take it on. And then I did take a Xanax from my doctor's recommendation, so that was really Mm -hmm. helpful. No shame in my Xanax game. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it just helped me take the edge off things. I was able to, like, sleep, which was important for me the night before. I had to get up, like, at 5.30 in the morning, so I wanted to make sure I was able to sleep. But my sister came down. We had a family dinner. We, like, laughed and joked. And it was just really nice to have that family support and, like, kind of just get my mind off things and just you know, focus on myself that day and just feel a little bit more confident going into the surgery. Did you take that feeling with you once you woke up from the surgery? Yeah. One thing that was so helpful was I had a friend who said the last conscious thought that you have before, like while you're laying on the operating table, is going to be the first feeling you wake up with. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I have to, you know, think of my last conscious thought is like, you're strong woman, like in some, you know, and you're so grateful. So I remember trying to think of that. And then I woke up and I had, you know, the same feeling like, oh my gosh, I did this. I'm so strong. I'm so proud of myself. And 
um, I felt just like a huge sense of relief. That's so awesome. I want to know if there was like one thing you really wish you knew before recovery started that you've discovered during these last couple of weeks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was so concerned about the pain. Like that is like my biggest fear before. I don't think I focus on the other things which have been much harder. So the pain in my mind was going to be excruciating. And I'm sure for some women, it's it's so different. Everyone has, you know, a different pain tolerance and different experiences. But for me, I've been quite lucky and it's been uncomfortable and it's not super easy, but it's not like this excruciating pain that I thought it was going to be in. And so I think the more surprising thing is I remember hearing like, oh, you won't be able to even like really move on your own or like reach for something on your own. And I was like, oh, I'll, that's fine. Like I will maybe cherish the fact that my parents will help me do all these things. But that's been the hardest part. And the most frustrating thing, you really like can't get up out of bed. And like, I literally like TMI, but like couldn't even wipe my own butt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, thank you so much, mom. But like, <laughs> I, I think like you just don't realize that part's going to be so hard. And I also think, like, I'm so tired all the time. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize the fatigue would get me down so much. So I think just, like, focusing so much on one part of it helped me in a way maybe I was able to process the pain a little bit better. But I didn't also think of, like, all the other things included. I think that point about fatigue is so interesting because you're right. Like when we talk about surgery, we really mostly think about the pain, but the fatigue is like, that must be so frustrating. It is so frustrating. I mean, I'll have days where I feel okay about the fatigue. And then like just the other night, I just like randomly started crying. And it was like, I was just so frustrated because it's like, you know, you have to put on a brave face every day and try and fight the fatigue. And if there was like an hour where I didn't feel nauseous or I didn't feel pain, I'd be like, I'm cherishing this moment right now. I'm just so grateful. And just the little wins. And it's it's hard because I don't see the improvement so much in myself every day. But then people around me will be like, Sarah, you couldn't walk down the driveway when I last saw you and now you're walking down the street like remember that my surgeon said like I was healing so well and I'm doing so great and I was getting so down on myself that I was resting so much but obviously it's working and every hour of rest I think that it's just like my body trying to heal and kind of like make my boobs perkier or something (laughs) so I try and just like kind of give into it and allow myself to just take this time to rest. Oh, a hundred percent. While we're talking about self-care and resting, what's the one Netflix show you're marathoning during this entire period? Okay. The crazy thing is I had a list of TV shows and Netflix shows and everything that I'd watch, but because they're on so many pills, I cannot focus and I have not watched any TV except Shark Tank, which is so weird. I (laughs) never watch it, and I don't know why, but it's, like, the one thing that I can kind of, like, watch for a little bit and then, like, rest and watch for a little bit and rest. It's, like, everything you think you thought you would do, it's just, like, kind of the complete opposite. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Is there (laughs) anything else you really want to make sure you get a chance to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, I think the one biggest thing for me is just other people out there just to not compare 
your journey to someone else. That's been a huge lesson for me. And I think knowing that every experience is different and to not get down on yourself if you're, you know, not quite where someone else is because everybody is different, every person is different, and every recovery is different. So I think that's just the most important thing is that, you know, realize that you can only do what you can do and that's okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm, I wish we could talk for a million hours, but I know you need to (laughs) rest. Um, so thank you so much for calling in. I'm I'm so, so grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. See ya. Okay. Bye. So we want to thank Sarah for sharing her journey with us. She is just so fearless and a beacon of light. Definitely make sure that you check out her series on Bustle at bustle.com forward slash braving dash brca and if you want to keep track of her progress follow miss.sarah no h on instagram and totally send her a dm reach out to her and send her a word of encouragement or just get some of your own inspo thank you bcrf and dr mark for joining us and for all of your tireless efforts that really help millions of women around the world achieve better health And of course, thank you to Melanie McNucci for being our very first co-host at the Bustle Huddle. Oh my God, thank you, Jada. Thanks for having me. Anytime. So please, please make sure to hit us up on Twitter or email if you have any feedback. Just hashtag Bustle Huddle or write us at huddle at bustle.com. I'm so, so excited to be here at Bustle, and I'm so excited to get to know all of you guys. And definitely review us on iTunes, especially now that we're mixing up things a little bit. We want to know what you have to say. The Bustle Huddle is produced by Julia Shu, Michaela Heck, and Anna Parsons. I'm your host, Jada Gomez, and I will see you next time. Hey guys, you're listening to the Bottle Hustle. (laughs) (laughs) Together. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.